Today is Monday in the octave of Pentecost in the older traditional Roman calendar, and in the newer calendar with the Novus Ordo, it's, well, it's not. It would be, um, yeah, let me see here, yes, uh, Monday in the sixth week of ordinary time. Yeah, and this is Father Z back with another podcast. Today we welcome back as our guest, St. Augustine of Hippo, the great doctor of grace. He died in 430. We'll hear from him about the Feast of Pentecost. But first, we'll drill into just what a liturgical octave is. According to the old, traditional Roman calendar being used more and more now that Pope Benedict's motu proprio sumorum pontificum is in effect, God bless him for that, today is Monday in the octave of Pentecost. Now in many places today, it's even a public holiday in some European countries, for example. Uh, in English, uh, today is often called Whit Monday, the day after Whitson, which is an old English way to describe Pentecost, White Sunday, because of its connection with baptism. You see, uh, Pentecost was one of those special times of year to baptize, and so the white uh, invokes the image of the baptismal robes, the white robes of the baptized. This is one of the reasons why, on the Feast of Pentecost, there was a special hunk igitur inserted into the Roman canon on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, just as there was an Easter to make reference to the people being baptized. And so in the traditional calendar, we are in the octave of Pentecost. And uh, let's drill into what an octave is, a liturgical octave. An octave isn't just something that you can play on a musical instrument. An octave comes from octava, the eighth in Latin. An octave is for octava die, the eighth day. And it can mean a couple of different things. Uh, first of all, octave is the eighth day after a feast, counting inclusively, so that it comes on the same day of the week as the week itself. We would call it a week later, but remember in, in ancient numbering, you count the day itself, so it winds up being eight days, oddly. Also, octave is the whole period of the eight days. So it's not just the eighth day, but also the whole eight-day period, those two senses of octaves. And an octave, so uh, therefore in our liturgical thinking, is a period of time when liturgical time is suspended. In a sense, it remains the same day during the whole period the church suspends time so that we can rest within the mystery we've celebrated and so we can contemplate it from different angles. Now, you know, think about this. 
The Holy Church is the greatest expert on humanity that there's ever been, and she knows what we need based on our human limitations. So, to emphasize certain important feasts, Holy Church would have us rest in them and consider them from different points of view over a period of time. You know, think about this, you know, maybe going to a museum. Say, for example, you're in Italy and you go to Florence and you want to go see Michelangelo's David. And, well, you glance at it for a moment and well, that's not really enough for you. When you, you want to get a better look, you want to spend some time looking at it. So you look at it from this direction and, well, that's inadequate just to look at it from one direction. So you walk around it and you go and get a different angle. You see it from a different point of view. Given our human limitations, a single day in a year doesn't suffice for us to gather in the different dimensions of a mystery of so great a feast as Pentecost, for example. As a matter of fact, we can spend a lifetime. We will spend eternity and not be able to exhaust this great mystery. But, liturgically speaking, one day is really not very adequate. So we have an octave, and it allows us to reflect on a feast in different ways. Now, Eastern Catholics and the Orthodox, they also do this. They have an octave after great feasts. They have what they call after feasts, where they extend the number of days for the feast. The last day being the apodosis, or the giving back of the feast, when they have a summation of the whole feast's cycle. They sing all the different hymns that they sang in the different days, for example. But in the West, we use these octaves, these, this resting period, so we can contemplate the different ideas that uh, only time can allow us to come up with. Now, octaves are probably inspired, uh, in part at least, by Scripture. In Leviticus, for example, we find that there's the eight-day Feast of Tabernacles, which is, of course, the Jewish source for our Pentecost celebration. The first Pentecost occurred in a specific number of days after the ascension of the Lord. It occurred around the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, in the ancient church, there wasn't so much a celebration for the whole eight days, um, except, of course, for that period of mystagogical catechism for the newly baptized after Easter, but rather there was an observance on the eighth day itself. And it eventually developed that all sorts of different feasts received an octave, uh, not just an eighth day celebration, but also the whole period, of the whole period in between. And it wasn't just Easter, but also Christmas. And of course, Epiphany, Epiphany had an octave. Epiphany was a more important feast than Christmas in many ways. And uh, even the feast of dedication of churches and so forth. And then various saints received octaves, uh, the oldest of which I believe is Saints Peter and Paul, of course, because of their you know, great importance. So we had all these octaves, and uh, matter of fact, it got there got to be so many they started to overlap. Uh, this is one of the reasons why Saint Pius V, in the 16th century, began to reduce the number of octaves, and also they started classifying them into different levels of dignity, so they knew knew what would take precedence. Uh, there were what we called privileged octaves for the really big ones. For example, like Easter and Pentecost. These were the two great, great octaves, Easter and Pentecost. Keep that in mind as we go along, by the way. 
Eastern Pentecost uh, had these privileged octaves when no other feast could be celebrated. And then, of course, there were other kinds of octaves, uh, maybe a little less weighty for Christmas and Epiphany and Corpus Christi. Uh, it all got very complicated. Uh, eventually, Pope Leo XIII and Pius X, they rearranged things a bit. Uh, there was a reclassification of octaves into privileged octaves and common octaves and simple octaves. Uh, privileged octaves were broken down into the first order. Get this, you know, even subdivisions of privileged octaves. They were first order, second order, third order. The first order ones were Easter and Pentecost, of course, because they're the most important. Second order were Epiphany and Corpus Christi, of course, which makes sense. Third order privileged octaves were Christmas, Ascension, and the Sacred Heart. But then there were also common octaves, which would include such feasts as the Immaculate Conception and St. Joseph and St. Peter and Paul and all saints, you know, things having to do with basically with the saints. And then there were simple octaves, um, such as St. Stephen, St. John the Apostle, Holy Innocents. Notice that those are all immediately after Christmas, and they would have been within the Christmas octave. You see how these things, they, they began to overlap uh, you can find this, for example, in older editions uh, still of the of the Liber Usualis, a magnificently useful book, as it's entitled, Liber Usualis, useful book that you can use for singing the office from a Gregorian chant. Uh, it was very confusing when I first became Catholic, and I had this old, old, old edition of the Liber Usualis, and I saw all these overlapping lapping octaves and I just couldn't figure out how is it that they could figure out what they're supposed to do with all these different octaves but you know that all got sorted out but uh, in any event uh, on uh, on the 23rd of March of 1955 uh, Papa Pacelli stepped in to put a little order into things Pope Pius Twelfth of happy memory servant of God hopefully we'll see him beatified he put uh, out a decree that all octaves in the Roman Rite were to be suppressed, including those of local calendars, except for three, Christmas, Easter, and, of course, Pentecost. So, as of 1955, we get three octaves only. I'm a little surprised they didn't keep the octave of Epiphany, but um, in any event, the next reform after that of Pius XII occurred uh, very sadly in 1969. This is one of the most tragic and pointless things ever done to the Roman Rite when Pope Paul VI removed the octave of Pentecost for the new Novus Ordo calendar, leaving us with only, sadly, two octaves, one for Christmas and one for Easter. Oh... Well, I was told uh, once upon a time a story by one of the papal masters of ceremonies. Uh, not the chief ceremoniere, but uh, one of the auxiliaries. There are a whole bunch of them. And uh, on, apparently in 1970, on Pentecost Monday, the Holy Father, Pope Paul VI, who had signed into effect everything that the Concilium had issued under Annibali Bunini, uh, for the Novus Ordo, he came down to his chapel to say Holy Mass, and to his surprise he found green vestments laid out for him. Not the red of Pentecost, but the green of the time through the year, ordinary time. And the puzzled Pope asked, 
why are there green vestments here? And he received the explanation that after Pentecost, it, it's ordinary time. But it's the octave of Pentecost, the Pope objective, objected. And the Cerimoniere responded to holiness, there is no more octave of Pentecost. And who did that? The Pope asked. You did, Your Holiness. And Pope Paul wept as the realization hit him of the great change that had been made in its implications. Now, this story has gotten around the Internet a little bit. I've seen it on a couple of different blogs and different forums and in articles and so forth. I'm the source of this tale. Uh, I can't vouch for its absolute accuracy, but this is what I was told by one of the papal masters of ceremonies who has now passed to his reward, God rest him. Uh, it may be true, it may not, but it certainly does emphasize the the massive change in in vestments and in seasons in the liturgical dates and so forth, which betrays uh, a, an attitude, a, a very different attitude from that which was before. Uh, but in any event, in the Novus Ordo now we have only two octaves, Easter and Christmas. While in the 1962 calendar, because of Summorum Pontificum, our extraordinary use of the Roman Rite, we also have the Octave of Pentecost. The Octave of Pentecost lives again in a way. The elimination of the octave was, as you're probably figuring out, to my mind, an abominable and unnecessary mutilation of the calendar. But, you know, there are always reasons for, for what they, you know, they did back then. There were reasons for the suppression. I'm guessing, I'm thinking that what happened is that they wanted a clean ending for that long Lenten and Paschal cycle. Uh, but in my mind, this was an entirely unnecessary and very unwise thing to do. Uh, is it really necessary, for example, to tinker with the calendar like that? Uh, is it really for our good? For example, uh, let's take a pet peeve of mine. Uh, is it really necessary to move the Feast of Ascension Thursday to Sunday? I mean, after all... We have this from Scripture, how many days there were between the ascension of the Lord and the descent of the Holy Spirit. That's from Scripture. And it was celebrated from the very earliest centuries that way. So did they really have to move the Feast of Ascension to Sunday? Do they really have to abolish, for example, the beautiful rubric in the older form that the paschal candle was to be extinguished for uh, for good just after you read the gospel on Ascension Thursday when the Lord ascends? It would put the candle out at that moment. Was it really for the good of the church that we got rid of that? I'm sure there are all sorts of reasons for doing what they did, but I I get the sense that they are the motives of Experts See, they're kind of cold and calculating. They're the, the motives, the, the reasons of people who respect their own scholarship or their own innovative ideas more than the millennial traditions of the church. They did so much tinkering after the council, and I've just got to ask, really, to whose good was it? 
Now, sure, there might be reasons to move a saint's feast day from one day to another. Maybe they want to ground it in some better scholarship. Modern tools of research, you know, have found out a lot more things that people didn't know before. But when they move something like that, when they move a feast day, people's name days are displaced or eliminated completely. Towns and religious orders and schools lose their patronal feast days when you move them from one day to another. People used to know when to plant crops and harvest things according to feast days. They have proverbs and languages and literature that made sense according to the old calendar before they started tinkering around with things. For example, in Rome, let's take one of the most famous Italian proverbs associated with St. Benedict in March. They used to celebrate the return of the swallows to the city of Rome in, in spring by saying, San Benedetto, rondine sul tetto. That there's a swallow on the roof. It's St. Benedict's Day. It's just a way that you know that, that it's spring fully back and it's, and it's Benedict's Day. They associated these things because there was a rhythm to life. This, the, the saint's day and the changing of the seasons, they were all tied together. I can hear it now. But father, but father, I'm sure that you know some of you might be saying out there, you know, there are problems with some of the historical accuracy of the feasts of some saints. After all, we can't, you know, we can't know for sure that some of them existed. Or if they did a, a, a recognitio of the relics in a tomb, they found that they weren't human bones at all. They were like a dog or something like that. So, you know, why are we celebrating certain saints who, whose historical existence we can't prove or verify well okay you know that's fine i mean look there are always things that we have to adjust here and there adjustments are sometimes in order and they always were there always were adjustments through the centuries but they were small and gentle and here and there and so forth but this wholesale overturning of the calendar with liturgical seasons and the shifting of feasts and the eliminations of customs and rubrics well Cui bono? Was it really for the good of the church? Are we really better off, for example, that we don't have pre-Lent preparatory Sundays in the Novus Ordo? Hmm? Now, sure, the calendar is simpler, but people for centuries were smart enough to figure out when Lent started, and they observed it better than we do. So, are we really better off because of these changes? Did the elimination of the octave of Pentecost, this ancient, ancient observance, really help us? Now, I found it very encouraging that for the third edition of the Missali Romanum, the Novus Ordo Missal, a vigil for the Ascension was reintroduced. So I'm very hopeful that perhaps in a, some fourth edition down the line, maybe someday, there could be a restoration of the Octave of Pentecost, maybe under the influence of the fruits of Summorum Pontificum, uh, given to us as a great gift by Pope Benedict, now gloriously reigning. But even if you are usually attending the Novus Ordo and don't really pay much attention to the traditional Latin Mass. Remember, in another sense, the extraordinary sense of, or use of the Roman calendar, the Roman rite, the octave of Pentecost has indeed been restored to its rightful place in our lives. Every Catholic 
whether you go to the older Mass or not, can enjoy its observance in various ways. The first way is to be aware, aware of it and know that there was one and know that it's very important to reflect on the great feasts that are about the mysteries of our faith and to rest in them for a while, to contemplate them for a, a bit with from different angles, to consider them, and not just let them pass just like that, just like a shot after one day. Now, in honor of our Solemnity of Pentecost and the Great Octave of Pentecost, let's hear what St. Augustine of Hippo had to say on Pentecost back in 412. It was the 2nd of June. And there are a few things that you can pay attention to in this sermon, which we're going to hear. We're going to listen to his sermon, 267. The great preacher, this great doctor of grace, he tries to explain, uh, first of all, what solemnity means. Uh, Augustine says that solemnitas is ab eo cod solet in anno, from that which is customary in the year. Now, we know from the modern tools of research that Augustine didn't have that uh, the sole part is not from the Latin soleo, to be accustomed to, to, accustomed to do something, but rather from an archaic root, a 2L sol, S-O-L-L, meaning every. And, of course, annus gives us the rest of the word, annus, which means year. So he wasn't really all that far off when you put it in the balance. You know, we shouldn't, sometimes because we have modern tools of research, we shouldn't just, you know, kind of sneer at what the explanations that people came up with before. I mean, that leads to all sorts of you know, weird changes that upsets people's lives sometimes, as I was just ranting about a little bit ago. Uh, so it's kind of nice to see how Augustine pays attention to the words, and he helps his flock try to crack open and get into the marrow of the feast through the words themselves. Uh, also keep your ears tuned to the use he makes of the imagery of new wineskins being filled with the Holy Spirit and how people are like wine and then there are languages and so forth that flow forth from them. So there's all sorts of imagery of flowing and wine and maybe even inebriation and the results. You know, there's a whole sober inebriation theme in the writings of some of the fathers. Sober inebriation. Uh, you could have some fun exploring this connection in this sermon. Uh, so the new languages are compared by Augustine to the new kinds of wine that are flowing. So listen to all sorts of this imagery about flowing and wine and the importance of that. And how Christ is like Christ is like the, the whole bunch of grapes that was then crushed 
in order uh, for us to have the new wine. It's very interesting. The fermenting process is in there. It's all about wine making. It's really very interesting. Uh, then listen to what he has to say about gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, and why uh, we, are, we aren't having the same gifts that the people in the Acts of the Apostles had. You know, why aren't we all going around speaking, of, speaking in tongues and, and doing things? Well, he, he gets into uh, a theology of the church and our individual vocations. This is part of Augustine's ecclesiology, right? Who the church is, what the church is. We have many members in one church, but then he gets into unity, you know, why, why we have to be uni in union with the church in order to have life. And he gets into the words spiritus and anima in order to explain the life of the members of the body and then the life of the whole body. So it's very interesting. Keep your ears tuned to what he does with that language. And uh, he will also, and this is something that you should pay attention to whenever you hear Augustine preaching through these sermons. You should read them out loud if you can, not just, you know, sit there and stare at the page. Uh, listen to phrases whenever Augustine is preaching, like, as you just heard, because Augustine uh, is commenting on the scriptures that had just been sung aloud. You see, what would happen is they'd sing the readings, and then the singer would bring the scroll of scriptures over to the bishop, who would be seated in a chair in front of the people. And he'd begin to speak, and he'd use the scriptures, the scroll in his lap as he, as he spoke. And Augustine used a very simple style of oratory, which we call in, in rhetoric the cerebo humilis, the humble speech. And it's characterized by being... Uh, very direct and uh, very easy to follow without too many rhetorical flourishes, but with some, you know, especially the simple ones. Uh, for example, you'll, as I read the Latin of this, listen for the parallels that he uses, words that sound the same to, uh, to delight the ear, to draw the person in, to help people remember the connections of concepts. Uh, the last paragraph is a great example of the of the sermo humilis. It's very it's very instructive, um, and uh, as a matter of fact, it's almost kind of Latin baby talk. It's so simple. If you have some Latin, you can probably just listen to it and understand what he's talking about. So you maybe as you're listening to this, imagine that you're part of a large crowd in this basilica and Pentecost Sunday. You're part of a large crowd pressing in, pressing close up to the front, trying, jostling maybe even a little bit to get close to Augustine, to listen to him, because his voice, as he tells us himself, wasn't all that strong. So you're getting close, everybody gets real quiet, real hushed, as he takes the scroll of scripture into his lap, and then he gathers his thoughts, and then he, spe then he begins to speak.
Odierni die i solemnitas, domini de imagni et magne grazie, que superfusas super nos recordationem facit. Ideo enim solemnitas celebratur nec quod semel factums de memoria deleatur. Solemnitas enim ab eo consolet in anno, nomen accepit. Quomor perennitas fluminis digitur, quia non siccatur estate, sed per totum annum fluid. Ideo perenne, id est per annum, sicet solemne, quod solet in anno celebrari. Celebramus horie adventum spiritus sancti. Dominus enim spiritum sanctum de celo misit, quem in terra promisit. Et quia sic promiserat de celo esse missurum, Non potest dile venire ait nisi ego abiro, dum autem abiro, mitam illum ad vos. Passus est, mortus est, resurrexit ascendit, restabat ut impleret quod promisit. Hoc expectantes discipuli eius anime ut scriptum centum viginti decuplato numero apostolorum. Duodici menim elegit, et in centum viginti spiritum misit. Hoc ergo promissum expectantes in una domo erant orabant, quia desiderabant iam ipsa fide, quod ipsa oratione, ipso spiritali desiderio. Utres novi erant, vinum novum de celo expectabatur, et venit. Iamenim fuerat magnus botrus ille calcatus et glorificatus. Legimus enim in Evangelio, Spiritus enim non dumerat datus, quia Iesus non dumerat. Today's solemnity makes us remember the great Lord God and the great grace that has been poured out over us. That, after all, is why a solemnity is celebrated, to save something that only happened once from being lost to the memory. A solemnity, you see, gets its name from what is customary in the year. Just as we talk of a river being perennial, because it doesn't dry up in the summer, but flows throughout the year, perennial, therefore, that is, through the year, so too solemn, something that is customarily celebrated every year. Today we are celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Lord, you see, sent the Holy Spirit from heaven, having promised him on earth. And because this is how he had promised he would send him from heaven, he cannot come, he had said, unless I go away, but when I go away I will send him to you. He first suffered, died, rose again, ascended, it now remained for him to carry out his promise. This is what his disciples were waiting for, a hundred and twenty souls, as it is written, ten times the number of the apostles. I mean, he chose twelve and sent the Spirit on a hundred and twenty. So while awaiting this promised gift, they were together in one house, praying. Because they were now awaiting in faith itself, what they were expecting in their prayer and their spiritual desire. They were new wine skins. The new wine was expected from heaven, and it came. That great bunch of grapes, after all, had already been trodden and glorified. You see, we read in the gospel, 
for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. You heard just now what the answer was, a great miracle. All the people present had learned one language. The Holy Spirit came, they were filled with it, they began to speak with the different languages of all nations which they didn't know and hadn't learned. But the one who had come was teaching them. He entered, they were filled, he poured out from them. And then there was enacted this sign. Whoever received the Holy Spirit suddenly, filled with the Spirit, started speaking with the tongues of all not only those hundred and twenty. The text itself teaches us this. When people believed, they were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit, they spoke with the tongues of all nations. Those who were present were dumbfounded, some filled with wonder, others given to mockery, to the extent of saying, These people are drunk, full of new wine, they were jeering, and they were saying something true. Wineskins, you see, were filled with new wine. You heard about it when the gospel was read. Nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. The carnal person does not receive the things of the Spirit. Being carnal means being old. Grace means newness. The more you are renewed for the better, the more you receive what smacks of the truth. The new wine was fermenting, and with the new wine fermenting, the languages of the nations were flowing freely. Isn't the Holy Spirit being given nowadays, then, brothers and sisters? Anyone who thinks that isn't worthy to receive it. It certainly is given nowadays. So why is nobody speaking with the tongues of all nations, as people spoke who were filled with the Holy Spirit at that time? Why? Because what that signified has been fulfilled. What was that? When we celebrated the fortieth day, remember, I drew your attention to how the Lord Jesus Christ drew a sketch of his church and then ascended. His disciples were asking, When will the end of the world be? And he said, It is not for you to know the times or moments which the Father has placed under his own authority. He had still to promise what he has carried out today. You will receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming down upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and the whole of Judea and Samaria, and as far as the ends of the earth." The church was then in one house. It received the Holy Spirit. It consisted of a few people. It consisted of the languages of the whole world. There you have what it was pointing forward to now. The fact, I mean, that the small church was speaking with the tongues of all nations. What else can it signify but that this great church, from the rising of the sun to its setting, is speaking with the tongues of all nations. Now is being fulfilled what was then being promised. We have heard, we can see, Hear, daughter, and see. The queen herself was being addressed. Hear, daughter, and see. Hear the promise. See the fulfillment. Your God hasn't deceived you. Your bridegroom has not deceived you. 
the one who gave his blood for your dowry hasn't deceived you. The one who found you ugly and made you beautiful, found you unclean and made you a virgin, has not deceived you. It's you that were promised to yourself, but promised in a few people, fulfilled in many. So none of you must say, I have received the Holy Spirit. Why aren't I speaking with the tongues of all nations? If you want to have the Holy Spirit, consider this, my dear brothers and sisters. Our spirit, by which every person lives, is called the soul. Our spirit, by which every single human being lives, is called the soul. And you can see what the soul does in the body. It quickens all its parts. It sees through the eyes, hears through the ears, smells through the nostrils, speaks with the tongue, works with the hands, walks with the feet. It's present simultaneously to all the body's parts to make them alive. It gives life to all, their functions to each. The eye doesn't hear, the ear doesn't see, the tongue doesn't see, nor do ear and eye speak but they're alive all the same. The ears alive, the tongues alive, different functions, life in common. That's what the Church of God is like. In some of the saints it works miracles, in other saints it proclaims the truth, in other saints it preserves virginity, in other saints it preserves married chastity. In some this, in others that all doing their own thing, but living the same life together. In fact, what the soul is to the human body, the Holy Spirit is to the body of Christ, which is the Church. The Holy Spirit does in the whole Church what the soul does in all the parts of one body. But notice what you should beware of. See what you should notice. Notice what you should be afraid of. It can happen in the human body, or rather from the body, that one part is cut off, a hand, a finger, a foot. Does the soul follow the amputated part? When it was in the body it was alive, cut off it loses life. In the same way, too, Christian men and women are Catholics while they are alive in the body, cut off they have become heretics. The spirit doesn't follow the amputated part. So if you wish to be alive with the Holy Spirit, hold on to loving-kindness, love truthfulness, long for oneness, that you may attain to everlastingness. Amen. Nemo ergo dicat, accepi spiritum sanctum, Quare non loco linguis omnium gentium? Si vultis haberi spiritum sanctum intendite fratres mei. Spiritus noster, quo vivit omnis homo, anima vocatur. Spiritus noster, quo vivit singulus quisque homo, anima vocatur. Et videtis quid faciat anima incorpore. Omnia membra vegetat. Per oculos videt, per aures audit, per nares olfacit, per linguam loquitur, per manus operatur, per pedes ambulat. Omnibus simuladest membris ut vivant. Vitam dat omnibus, opicia singulis. 
non audit oculus, non videt auris, non videt lingua, nec loquitur auris et oculus. Sed tamen vivit. Vivit auris, vivit lingua. Officia diversos sunt, vita communis. Sic est ecclesia dei. In aliis sanctis facit miracula, in aliis sanctis locutur veritatem, in aliis sanctis custodit virginitatem, in aliis sanctis custodit pudiciciam coniugalem, in aliis hoc, in aliis illud. Singuli propria operantur, sed pariter vivunt. Codautem est anima corpori hominis, hoc est spiritus sanctus corpori Christi, quod est ecclesia, hoc agit spiritus sanctus in tota ecclesia, quod agit anima in omnibus membris unius corporis. Sed videte quid caveatis, videte quid observetis, videte quid timeatis, contingit ut in corpore humano, immode corpore aliquod precidatur membrum, manus, digitus, pes, numquid precisum secutur anima? Cum in corpore eset, vivebat, precisum amitit vitam. Sic et homo Christianus Catholicus est, dum in corpore vivit, Precisus hereticus factus est, membrum amputatum non sequitur spiritus. Si ergo vultis vivere de spiritu sancto, tenete caritatem, amate veritatem, desiderate unitatem, ut perveniatis ad eternitatem. Amen. Do you hear how important it is to stay with Holy Mother Church? How important Augustine thinks it is. When we break the church's unity by falling into error or straying into some group which is separated from the visible point of reference, Christ's own vicar on earth, the Roman pontiff, we endanger our souls and we endanger those of others too because we can cause scandal and lead them astray. And uh, we also harm the unity of the church when we fall into sin and we persist in it. We can fall into error, we can fall into sin, we can fall into the horror of schism. The fathers had a real horror of schism. And sometimes we do these things simply because we are maybe too stubborn uh, to let go of our own pet ideas. Or maybe, on the other hand, there was some past wrong or some something that hurt us, maybe someone 
who hurt us. We had a bad experience. And we hold ourselves away from the church, clenched up. No, I won't be in union with them. And you either go into some other group or fall away or, or stop thinking that unity with the church is important simply because of your own personal experience. Forgetting that we are not just in this ourselves. Certainly, yes, we are all going to face our judgment alone by ourselves. But it's God's design that we do this as part of a church, that we belong to a church. It's not just, you know, like some some groups sort of say, just me and Jesus, you know. it's We are part of a church, and we must be involved in it in a in a in an intimate way in a in a bond of charity and in a bond of truth so when we encounter people who've separated themselves either by a purposeful act or because they are they've just fallen away or whatever it might be we must work for the love of god and neighbor we must work through patient acts of charity to help bring them back and inspire them in some way to reconsider. Uh, never forget the power of an invitation. Let them know that they're welcome. You know, they might say no ten times, but, you know, it's interesting about invitations. Uh, people like to be invited. Even if they say no, there's something deep inside that appreciates the fact that you thought enough about them to invite them. And maybe, maybe something will soften in them. We can pray. We can pray for them. Pray to their guardian angels to help them uh, come back and, and relax and relent. We can pray to the, maybe the, 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 the name day saint. You know, I was talking about name days earlier. We can pray maybe, maybe in this octave of Pentecost, this time, this beautiful time. You might pray to the Holy Spirit for these people. Think about the fabulous sequence that is sung on every day of the octave of Pentecost in the older form of Holy Mass, the marvelous Veni Sancti Spiritus. I love, absolutely love this sequence with its very haunting melody. Um, it's, here, let's just listen to it.
Come, Holy Ghost, send forth the heavenly radiance of your light. Come, Father of the poor, come, giver of gifts, come, light of the heart. Greatest comforter, sweet guest of the soul, sweet consolation. In labor, rest, in heat, temperance, in tears, solace. O most blessed light, fill the inmost heart of your faithful. Without your divine will, there is nothing in man, nothing is harmless. Wash that which is unclean, water that which is dry, heal that which is wounded, bend that which is inflexible, warm that which is chilled, make right that which is wrong. Give to your faithful who rely on you the sevenfold gifts. Give reward to virtue, Give salvation at our passing on. Give eternal joy. Amen. Alleluia. That's it for today. Please join us at the blog at WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? May God bless you, and please pray for me as I will for you. <laughs>